The GovCon Secrets Podcast will take a deep dive into the government contracting space where you'll hear from a variety of expert guests on strategy, pricing, benefits, business tactics, and all this to save you a ton of money, time, energy, and effort. I'm your host, Jim Campbell, former Marine and CEO of Axum Fringe Solutions Group. My goal is to redefine the benefits world with a brutally honest view of how benefits, compliance, finance, and overall contracting strategy mixed with my years of experience and expertise can benefit you to deploy strategies to help your GovCon grow and win in the future, all the while without boring you to death. We're going to have fun. Let's start the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another podcast episode of GovCon Secrets. Today, we've got a great one for you. We are here speaking with the contracting officer to contracting officers, Mr. Kevin Jans of Skyway Acquisitions. Kevin, thank you so much for joining with us. Not a problem. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I I know that we've been kind of dancing back and forth. We started working with each other just a couple months ago, but uh, it's been very enlightening this last couple months of learning the ins and outs of what works and what doesn't work in government contracting. So uh, it's been a great, been great partnership so far and uh, looking forward to today's conversation. I, I agree. Awesome. Well, you know, when we kick off here, a lot of people probably know about you, your podcast, you do a new episode seemingly every two days, but uh, you've got a lot it's of every week. It just feels like more than that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a lot of exposure. Why don't you tell everybody about yourself and Skyway Acquisitions? So I started the company oh, 12 years ago, I guess. At the time I was a contracting officer and, and realizing that the government folks, we thought we understood things about industry. And I thought, you know what? There's probably a lot of stuff in the industry that, that, that they don't know about us. Well, it turns out that goes both ways. And so we're named after Skyway. The company is named after the, Sky, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge that goes across the southern edge of Tampa Bay. And the concept is now we've been on both sides of the bridge. We understand how government contracting works as a team of 13 contracting officers. And we also understand what it feels like from the industry side. And so our mission is to bring more context, is to help those two sides understand each other so that we're able to meet missions. Because at the, at the end of the day, a contract is there to help meet a government mission. And the government is buying something This and the and industry is selling something, but the mission behind that meets through the contract. And so the idea of Skyway, I quit my job with a, a four-year-old and a six-year-old to go change the world with this idea of if people understood the contracting officer's point of view, both sides would thrive. And I don't know, a dozen years in, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm putting a dent in the universe, as they say, so we're getting there. That's right. That's great. And you only hire former contracting officers, correct? Yes, we have what 15 people. Technically, we have uh, of the 15, one is Amber. She, she's our, our VP of operations. So she runs all the other stuff. And then we have Raymond, who's the only consultant who's not a contracting officer, but it's because he spent his whole career on the business side on selling to the government. So he has more experience actually writing proposals and, and building pipelines and building a, an overall branding to the government. So he understands what it's like to be a government contractor. We had to learn that, right? The idea was he was a client way back in the day, and I actually pulled him into the, into the Skyway Vortex and said, we need your perspective to help balance out the other 13 of us. Because we bring in folks who are fresh out of, of uh, government. Like we have, a couple, yep. we have two new contracting officers who've just retired from being contracting officers. Well, they need Raymond to help them understand a lot of the stuff they've learned from the podcast. They really need to know what it's like to be a government contractor so that we can cover that bridge well. So yes, with the exception of Raymond, everybody has yeah. been or, or even is a contracting officer. 
That's outstanding because sitting on the industry side, I'm sure you can appreciate when we have to work with clients, have to deal with contracting officers, there's a lot of ambiguity. They don't know how to talk to one another. The client is, or the customer's trying not to step on the contractor's toes, vice versa. And contracting officers seem to get churned quite a bit. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's been this washing machine of back and forth, I would say, of uh, people kind of missing each other and understanding. So when you, when you transitioned and started Skyway Acquisition and had to learn from the industry side, what, what was your first step? Did you go to a large customer that you worked with or, or how did you really start sitting on this side of the fence? So the, the, the biggest thing is that the business rule of getting customer interaction, talking to people and doing customer discovery and figuring out, okay, what does it really feel like over here? So I did that by talking to contractors by sitting in on, on red, like learning what a red team was, learning what, what color teams were, le- learning why pricing is so really difficult, particularly for small companies, <laughs> because to yep. be able to say this is going to cost X amount with a fixed price, what does that mean? I, I had, I started a couple of side businesses. I had a photography business. I did different things, you know, I got an entrepreneurial kind of background that I was building from even as a contracting officer. But then once I pulled the plug entirely and started helping companies, the biggest thing was just talk to them and then think about it from a contracting officer's point of view. What did I not, not only did I not know, but did not, not even have context on? Like understanding what it feels like to have to make payroll, you can't describe that to somebody until you've done it. And until, yeah, that, so there's certain things you can't get them to really get there with, but you can explain it in a way of this is why a contractor is freaking out when you haven't paid them or when, they're, when their prime contractor hasn't paid them and they're a subcontractor and they'll have privity of contract with you and they say, what's that? Like that whole conversation of helping on, helping them understand this is what's going on in the mind of the contracting officer. And here we are, like I said, 12 years later, now we have a pretty big chunk of government folks, contracting officers, even lawyers with the government, contracting officer representatives, government customers who want to understand what is industry thinking? Why are they reacting this way? So it go- that was the big insight I had that when I realized the things that they didn't know, here's a really fun example. Well, fun's the right word. Here's an interesting example. So I'm talking to one, one, this is one of those little client moments where they asked about the, the, the funding. When the funding gets put on contract, that's when it's obligated, right? So the clock starts on when the government can use funding, when Congress appropriates it. And they have one year to get it on contract yep. by September 30th, et cetera. This, and this is a government contractor. He said, so does a, when does the clock start? It starts when government customer decides to put that money on that contract. Like, no, it started when Congress appropriated it. That's obvious to those of us that live in this, right? But yep. this is a project manager as a contractor. Now he understands, oh, that's why my contracts team is freaking out because it's September 7th yep. and this hasn't, been, this hasn't been negotiated yet. But those little pieces of context that so, we think we understand, the things that we understand are clear to other people. And they're, this is a complex market. Everybody doesn't yep. know everything. So having that awareness of the, just the humility to realize Instead of getting furious, get curious and wonder, okay, what if they don't even know this? And that's what I built a whole business on. Because the things that the other side doesn't know, <laughs> sometimes is alarming, sometimes is fascinating, and most of the time it's just helpful to help them see it. Yeah, I, I, I literally have stolen a page from your book. I'm just telling you outright that uh, after I met you and Troy, like when, he, when you explained the bridge, right? And I, I have always said that we were the bridge between benefits and government contractors. 
because government contractors are always sold something by a benefits broker, but they don't understand how it really hits their fringe or applies to maybe overhead that they're costing. And the contractor only cares about that, right? They have to deliver on the contract and keep their people happy. But now I'm like, yeah, well, Skyway Acquisitions uses a bridge and I'm going to steal that because I think we're the bridge between the two industries. You had made mention that, you know, you have to find people that are really good at their job, right? And contractors are really trying to be good at their job and deliver. Contracting officers are trying to be good at their job and make sense of the contract. When you were creating this industry to contract and contract to industry bridge, did you have anybody that come, came to you from either side and said, what the hell are they trying to do? Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Or do you see that still? Yeah, we see that still. That, that's, the, that's the premise of what we do is that there are people on the other side wondering, why are they doing this? Gotcha. Why are they releasing this RFP when they, when, now? Why are they not competing this? How could you make the argument that this is a sole source? Why are you doing this as an 8A? Why is this not a commercial light? All of those questions are being asked by, by industry. And on the government side, why aren't they replying to my emails when I, when I want them? Why, aren't they, why isn't this company proposing? Why do they want it to be cost type? They should be able to do this. Why isn't this commercial? I've bought it before. All of these things that the, the government folks are wondering, and not, not to sound like I'm full of myself, but now they have somebody to ask. That's why they listen to our podcast. That's, that's why they, they come to us and, and frankly, consulting firms like us to be able to, to understand when I put this out in the world, when I put this out to industry, what's the most likely thing to happen? And sometimes the thing they, they think is going to happen is not what really is going to happen. And as a contracting officer, the times that I put something out and I like requiring a patent, or actually I didn't require a patent, I required a, a capability that as it turns out was patented. I didn't know that. I'm not hanging out in the patent office looking through <laughs> it. But when someone came back to me and said, you, well, the way you've asked for this, there's only one company that can win this contract. In that scenario, they sent me that email before I put out the RFP and before they had to protest. But if I had ignored them, this is how protests happen, right? They, they don't have context. You don't, they're not getting a response. And so they want to compete on this contract. And in this case, they totally would have protest, they would have protested and won because I put out something that had a patent on it without even gotcha. So the, the things that contracting officers do, we're not doing it to make every, the world harder. We're trying to get our job done like everybody else. It's just that the complexity yep. of GovCon can make it look like we don't know what we're doing. It's just like, well, we know 90%, but there's this 10% over here that we didn't see coming. And that's the part you happen to know. So now we look like an idiot in your eyes. And that's really interesting. Many a story of, of that happen that very thing happening to me. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I sit as a partner to government contractors. I don't know government contractors, what they need and what they want. But one, what we often find is it seems like there's so many new contracting officers. They don't know what they need and they want when they release these RFPs. And it looks, and I could be completely wrong, like they cut and paste from old opportunities or old RFPs and they put it out and they don't have like the right fringe rates or something like that in it or the even the right wage terminations and contractors get really frustrated because they're like, this is what we do. We know how to do this, but these rates are completely off. But if we win, are we stuck with this original rate that we know is wrong? And you know, th this has been, this is why we partnered with you all. Like, can we come back to you with these types of instances? Your teams are phenomenal, by the way, but well, thank you. these types of instances to help contractors be more informed to take back to the contracting officer without being like argumentative or defensive or whatever. 
Um, yeah. Do you find that to be helpful from the contractor side? Like taking them, hey, this doesn't really make sense to us. Can you help us understand or can can it be considered this way? Yeah, that, that that's again, that's crossing the bridge, right? As a, as a contracting officer, as a human, I'm looking for the path of least resistance. Well, the path of least resistance is how did they do it last time? Right out of the gate, we'll start with that. And you stack on the, t- the fact that, you, that there's an expectation. Of, I joke about the, there's the, the ball that was the big, the giant, the giant boulder that was chasing Indiana Jones through the hall, yeah. you know, down, down that tunnel. That's what it feels like as a contracting officer sometimes, particularly this time of year. But in general, the expectation is you, you, this is a simple acquisition. It's just a repeat of the services that we already had. We're just recompeting it. That's the tone, right? So the expectation is it'll get pr- done pretty quickly. So when I find the path of least resistance and I have the Indiana Jones ball chasing me, and I, as a contracting officer a dozen years ago, I had the luxury of there were more of the more of us contracting officers. There were relative to the amount of activity, there are actually fewer contracting officers now. So your comment about mm-hmm. them being younger, par- younger in experience at least, part of the problem is that there was a hiring freeze. So you can see, like even on our team, you can see a gap. Oh, there's the Shelleys and the Vickies and the Steves who are retired, and then there's me and and, and Paul and Troy who are like probably 15 years younger than. Them. There's a gap yep. there. I mean, you look at the, the, that gap is now a result of that the, the the break the government took from hiring. And the impact that's having is that the, the younger contracting officers, the active ones, been in three to five years, they don't have someone in their office to ask questions to. They So their path of least resistance is they got to chart it themselves. Well, think about how scary that is. It's like whatever you put out in the world, people are going to give you, you know, feedback in air quotes. The trick is, well, that's not a trick. The strategy is, as a contractor, understand that, that they're doing what they know or what they think will work or what they, what they know based on their experience. And if you come back with the tone of, I get that you're trying to do this, it might be that you're trying to do this, use these, these free refrigerators instead. The, just the tone of, of understanding the context of they're working for, you know, potentially it could be a small agency, but it could be a small department or division inside a giant agency like the DOD. Like we assume that everybody in the DOD has gotten all the training. There's a lot of agencies in the DOD that have like 15 contracting people. When I worked at Wright Patterson back in, in, well, that makes me sound really old, last century. How crazy is that? (laughs) You had seven, right? There was like 800 contracting people and they all had some experience and I had people to lean on. Well, imagine if you work in a smaller office that has 15 or so and five of them are new like you. Your path of least resistance is what you're charting. So being right. able to, to feel like you're not getting sold a strategy from the contractor, but they're telling you based on how this, it looks like you're trying to do this, try using this clause, or does it make sense to use this clause? And something as simple as that, as opposed to, why isn't this clause in the contract? I've gotten that tone from somebody. How do you think I react to that? Because what that says is you're an idiot. You didn't, you didn't search it right. I'm like, That's right. Brand new. I don't know what I'm doing yet. Should it be different? Of course. But, you know, life's got lots of shoulds in it. You know, work with what we've got. And so having the right. ability to close that context gap, as you can tell by how fast I'm talking, <laughs> that's what makes my day. Well, and I think you also have, there's so many companies competing for so few opportunities and the way their their timelines are set, they're trying to get in amongst, like you said, other proposals or RFPs, and they're trying to win as many awards. That contracting officer could be fielding way too much. That ball's chasing them down that ramp, you know? Yeah. So... You're right. It is a, a clear conversation of like understanding, maybe helping each other, right? Can you look at the opportunity this way or that way? What, how do you feel about the small business administration changing the rules recently 
around the allocations for SBA qualification, 8A qualification, and the set-aside requirements. Is is that going to have a massive impact on the amount of business that contracting officers are going to be seeing at some of these agencies? There's a lot of pieces in that. I'll, I'll, I'll start with how I feel about it. It's irrelevant because it's it's something that we're we're working through. It's yep. a matter of how do we do this the best. And I I go back to the a context of, of communicating over like what what is causing th- this change. You know, once you understand that, you can map accordingly. As far as how much work it's going to create, I I think it's going to be more difficult for well, definitely more difficult for contractors just because mm-hmm. there's, there's more steps here. But even for contracting officers. Now the question that goes through my head is, okay, as a contracting officer, if I do an 8A sole source or direct source, am I going to be, am I going to get a whack-a-mole moment where somebody suddenly decides that this isn't okay when it was okay, you know, a couple months ago, right? That's right. Um, had a conversation with, a, with a, a contracting officer a couple of days ago about this concept of, do we know what the statute, it's a statutory requirement. It's in the FAR that says you yeah. can sole source an 8A. If we're going to debate over whether or not a company would have, should have, could have been an 8A, that's separate from what the FAR says. The FAR says I can sole source. And so this contracting officer was getting pushback from their attorney saying, well, you can't sole source this to an 8A. And yes, I can. The question is whether or not this company is qualified to be an 8A. I'm, I'm not making that decision. Well, I'm making the that's decision right. on this half a million dollar contract that my customer needs done in two weeks. According to this FAR reference and, and, and FAR 6.3, I can award this. But that so that's sideways activity now. Whereas before that conversation wasn't happening two weeks ago or two months ago. Yep. But that idea yeah. of having, making sure we have the context on what question are we actually answering? If we're answering the question of what does the FAR say you can do with an 8A authority? As far as I know, <laughs> that hasn't changed in the actual FAR. It's the path to how you get to be an 8A and, and the presumption, all that kind of stuff. That's what we're going through right now. So yeah. Gotcha. Kind of, and that's, that's why I asked the question like, do you think this is going to precipitate even more pushback, lawsuits, disputes, whatever it is, right? Like, because there are a lot of companies out there, as you know, small, that, that's how they get their ramp. They, the 8A, if they're judicious, they're spending time paying attention to what they're bidding, their go, no-go strategies, they're, they're being smart about the contracts they're going after. They can really grow. And it's a great, it's a great opportunity. They don't, go 8A too fast, right? They get some experience under their belt. They can do their jobs and then they go 8A. It can absolutely blow up their companies. I'm, I was always, I guess, presumptuous that the government would keep that in line because it has benefited so many companies. But with these new changes, I'm starting to see like friction already starting to happen. People are, is it 8A? Is it not 8A? How can you justify it 8A and, you know, versus not? And, uh, I just wanted to see from your side, because you hear from both sides, right? If it's creating a problem internally at contracting officers. So the, I guess the bigger picture, well, I, I guess the bigger picture is this idea of they're just, I guess over the last 10 years, the number of small businesses who were selling to the government has shrunk. So there's, yeah. there's a, there's an exodus by small businesses, right? Well, this, this could be another example of why. Is it just when I, like, if you just got your 8A six months ago and all of a sudden they're like, oh, just kidding. And now, now we're undermining part of it. <laughs> yeah. It's whack-a-mole lifestyle, right? One of the things that makes right. government contracting, I don't know, attractive, I think, is that there is some stability in it. Like we, we joke about, it. it's a slog to get through the dynamic small business search database and to get your SAM registration done and to get your 8A. That's a lot of paperwork. 
The argument of why that's worth doing is that once you've got it in place and it works, you have access to the entire federal marketplace, like literally billions of, of opportunities, right? Whereas you negotiate a contract with a Fortune 100 company, that's their contract. It's like, yeah, there's opportunity right. with that contract, but it's one company. And, and I, I say this because, again, we've done, we've done both, right? It's so interesting. People say, hey, well, the paperwork to get my SAM registration is so arduous. I'm like, have you ever filled out all the, we had to get special insurance to work with a Fortune 500 company once. Like they, they had, the, we had this customized insurance that, you know, ma made the government's insurance requirements look kind of, kind of lax. That's right. And so there's all kinds of pieces to this that think in terms of as a contracting officer, I want to be able to award contracts to who can do the work. I would prefer that it be a capable small business. If the AA program is a way to show that you're capable, it's a way, by the way, not the only way, but it's a way. I don't think that, that this is going to get in the way of good companies if, just like in, in business in general, or in, in the way business operates, you have to adapt to what the changing market is. Well, this is another change. So if you're leading with your 8A, and I see that a lot on LinkedIn, like I have to get through a couple of sentences to figure out what exactly do you do, right? So don't lead with your 8A. If you were leading with it before, now you really shouldn't lead with it. What do you do? And yeah. Then the 8A is a leverage point to say, okay, yes, you want that? Oh, by the way, you can award to us you know, tomorrow. It's, it's as simple as when somebody wants to buy a, a standalone training from us and they say, do you take credit cards on your website? Yes, we do. I didn't say, hey, we're, we have a company with a credit card. Don't start with that. It's the <laughs> means to get to you, right? It's like, what problem do I solve for you? And, and then yep. uh, uh, do you have access to a GSA schedule? Yes, we do. Like once they understand how they can get to you, but you've got to start with the, what is the problem you solve. And so that's, that's the good news for eight days is that right now, People are looking more at what problem do you solve? And right. if you have that well positioned as, you, as an 8A who's got experience, who's been doing this work, and you can pull out of your back pocket, oh, by the way, we're also an 8A. Or, or and for that matter, an SDO, SDVOSB or women owned, or there's lots of nuances to that. But don't start with those, which by the way, that advice hasn't changed. I've been saying that since I was a contracting officer, is don't, don't right. start with, with your, your, the status of your company. Start with the problem you can solve for. My yeah, because that can be a limiting factor as well, right? Like if, if you're laying everything on your small business status and you run out of runway on it, people might not want to work with you because you're not as valuable as you once were or to help them or a prime or somebody like that. So uh, you, could, you can limit yourself by leading with the small business or the 8A or the, the socioeconomic status that you're leading so, with. So um, here's an example of the things that I'm, I'm going to jump on that point for a second. This is an example of things I didn't know that I didn't know as a contracting officer. <laughs> so the value of your company, the, the, the value of, of whether people want to work with you or for that matter, if you want to sell the company, a lot of that value is, is your pipe, is your pipeline. What are your opportunities? And to your point, if your entire pipeline is based on you being a veteran-owned small business, but you're going to sell your company to a large business, yep. your pipeline just lost its value. And so that's right. to your point, like there, there, I, I never thought of that as a contracting officer until I was sitting in a meeting with a company who was, he was trying to, to negotiate with a large business and they found out that he wasn't going to be an 8A in two years. And then he's like, oh, well, your value drops off a cliff then. <laughs> so yeah. let's not talk about just that. So yeah, there, yeah. there's a real example. Unless you have like a, uh, a, like you said, a patent or a tech or something like that, that actually stands out. Uh, you're right. You could eliminate yourself from even being an opportunity in the future, even as a partner, right? Because if that 8A is going to run out and 
you're not going to be around really to help the company or your whole position is to sell it quickly. Large companies look at you and say, oh, you don't, your value to us just went down. We don't even need to partner with you anymore. So yeah, the, the value then, of you is, is how well you've performed in that past performance that you've built. But if you can't right. build any more opportunity and, and you don't have any good past performance, you're just a name on a, you know, you're just somebody on their shingle. You're not, you're not really a, a, a business that can actually add value to other people. It's harsh. And you, you kind of dovetail right into that because I talk about, you know, don't lead with just your set aside status. You have to lead yeah. with your value. And we say that all the time. When you are looking, when you were a contracting officer, you were looking at opportunities and companies would just say, hey, we have great past performance. Did you ever say, prove it? Give me your list. Of, give me your roster of your, of your history. Give me your, you know, referrals. Or was yeah. it just like you're an 8A or you're a small business and it, we'll, we'll take your word for it? Yeah. Yes and no. Yes, I said prove it. And no, I wouldn't take their word for it. Because okay. at the end of the day, my, so think again, path of least resistance, right? The path of least resistance is to get the contract awarded. If I have to award the contract twice because your past, and I, I did this once and I learned from it and I, and I never did it again as a contracting officer. I took their word for it that they had experience doing this and then they couldn't gotcha. deliver. And they were an 8A and I direct sourced the contract. It was a couple million dollars. And I had to do it twice. We had, we, and then to hear my customer, my government customer, which is also their customer, the, the user, the one that wanted this equipment, he's like, but what, what's, why aren't they done yet? Well, I, they told me they could do this. I get that, Mr. Contracting Officer, but it's not actually happening, right? And so now I'm having this awkward conversation. So once that happens, that, that, that puts you in a spot that next time, I, I don't really want to take your word for it, right? So that pivot thing... Here's the good news. You can prove it with testimonials on your website. You can prove it with, depending on what agency you work, if, if it's defense contract management agency, by having good past performance that I can go look up without talking to you. You can prove it by having a government customer who, ha who already, like referring a government customer and say, hey, this, this, this agency is thinking about hiring me. Would you mind having a 15-minute conversation with them? That's a big ask. Don't do that all the time. But for that government customer, they know that you actually help them and that they're related to, the, to the, this other agency where they want to make sure they get the same benefit. Does that mean you're guaranteed to get the contract? No, but that's the prove it piece. Yep. The, my biggest recommendation is find ways to prove it without me having to, this is going to sound really lazy, without me having to do anything. Like, don't make me talk sure. to people, right? Like, show me, I mean, things like YouTube videos, testimonials on your website, descriptions of what you do. When you say my product is lighter, lighter compared to what? Show me why it's lighter. You have a patent on something? Do you have... Is it made out of a different material? Uh, likewise, we're faster, okay? Define faster. And here, let, me, let me give an example. When I say for, for Skyway, when, when I say that our, our service is great, right? We've defined our service. We want you to feel delighted, cared for, and confident. Those are the words that we use. And then when I say that, and you see that on the website, it's like, okay, now, now I know what, what, when they say service, what they actually mean. There you go. Now, it's a secondary issue if, if if we've actually been, made people delighted, but then you look at our testimonials and you can see that, right? That's the kind of stuff a contracting officer wants to look at. Say, okay, that, like if it, let's say it's a simple acquisition procedure, it's like, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, I could award it based on that. But don't make me like talk to your referrals or say, like referrals available upon request, I'm not going to call it. It's, it's like when you were interviewing for a job and you put that at the bottom, that's homework for them. Give right. them homework. Give them a solution that they can get through without having your help. And you go back to that boulder chasing them down the hill and they've got just so much, so many other opportunities. 
that more work might preclude them from even considering you because you couldn't prove it up front, right? You couldn't make it easier. And for the companies that kind of make that transition from small to midsize, they have some efficacy. They've done the great things in contracting. Do you, let's say they come to you, you've worked with them in the past, and I know you have to be impartial, but you've already built that confidence. You already know they can deliver. Is there any points internally or, or things that they can focus on in their relationship with you previously that would highlight them as the preferred contractor or preferred partner for that opportunity? So I'll give you a couple. Um, the first one is c- clearly show you understand the, the mission of the agency. That, was a, th- that wasn't as obvious to me when I was an Air Force contracting officer because Air, you know, Air Force has got a big mission, et cetera. But when I worked Special Operations Command, particularly when I worked in particular offices, supporting particular types of customers, you start to really see the people that are just trying to sell us something that they have, or they went to our, they, they, they watched a, a, a Navy SEAL movie and all of a sudden they think they understand this stuff, right? Versus like the language that they use, the, the order of, of how they prioritize experience, understanding the speed of acquisition was a, I don't know if it's still a phrase, but there was a, a phrase we used in, in, um, and silicon acquisition called deliberate moving with deliberate speed and we are in a hurry but not sprinting so fast that we're screwing stuff up right well for example if you use that kind of language at socom i i get that you recognize like that's the kind of thing you have to be there to learn it right that's the yep. stuff that shows up in your proposal so it's knowing the customer and then the second thing is targeting just because you have you understand this agency doesn't mean you can do everything for this agency and i have You'll notice that like when your your car dealership starts wanting to sell you like, I don't know, solar panels because they got your email address, that actually happens. <laughs> like, how what? That's not what you do, right? Well, it, 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 it's like the, the they're trying to just expand a relationship outside of what they do for you. Yeah. And that's something I noticed a lot as a contracting officer. And, 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 and again, I learned that now that I'm on the industry side and I work with both, it's called land and expand. It's a term for that, right? So it's, right. it's a sales yeah. term. Is you land in a, in a particular office and then you expand your relationship. That's fine if you're adding value. It's when you're starting to like go into other areas that you, you're not an expert in or your company's not an expert in or you don't have any past performance in or it seems weird you're even talking to me about that. That's when you know you're, you're jumping on. So don't do that. Okay, target on what you're good at. I get that the companies expand me. We do a few things now that we didn't do 10 years ago. But we have a clear explanation as to why that is. And gotcha. Spoiler alert. One of the, here, here's a, another one of those concepts that I learned on the industry side, but applies to the government side. When you diversify, let your clients lead you. So if the government asks you, hey, can you add this piece to the contract you already have and they modify, that's different because they're, they're, they've decided. Like I, I th- I've added uh, services and products to contracts because it was within scope, but something that we knew they could do. And it wasn't like a, we're doubling the size of the contract. It added like another 2%, but it's something that we thought they could do. That's an example of the government helping you diversify in something that you're good at. So again, there's that targeting piece. And then the third one is to document. Is document what you're good at. Document your past performance. I have many a conversation in like when we help companies write proposals, we're looking for, okay, what, what experience do we have on that? And people have to pull it out of their heads. Mm-hmm. They can... Nobody write that down, huh? You know, it's like that, that think in terms of like set a once a month meeting to, to just have everybody fire hose you on what you've done. Uh, f- for us, we, we call it the consulting stories. 
And so once a month, we'll say, what what have you guys worked on, you guys and gals? What stories do you have? And then those give us stories that we can either use in marketing, we can use in our proposals, or for that matter, just a confidence to know, yes, we can do that. Because people can hear that confidence, right? The government folks yep. and industry folks, when I talk to them, they can hear the confidence that I've been a contacting officer. I know just how much this can be awesome and miserable on the same day. It's just part of the game. <laughs> so having the awareness of writing down what worked, what didn't, so that you can pull that out when you need it. So that that's the third one is make sure you document stuff, which again, that that's not a very exciting thing to say, but it, man, it's effective. And I, I think that that goes a long way to why certain small businesses grow and they get to the mid-sized business and, and even bigger. And then certain small businesses just fold up shop and say, we're not doing government contracting anymore because they haven't been able to expand on their successes or they try to do too much, spread too wide. We've seen, I can't tell you how many XYZ security company that also does facility maintenance, right? right. And didn't do it well. And the prime that they were attached to that brought them in for their socioeconomic status, they took a hit as well, right? They didn't just lose a, a sub that couldn't perform. They lost face with the government customer. And that's yeah. a big deal. Like you said, it's, you know, you're cleaning bases or whatever, and you don't think it's a big deal. Go ahead and miss on a government contract at a facility. Don't show up one day to clean the restrooms at FBI or something like that, right? You're not going to come back. You're not, you're, and you're not going to bounce back from that reputation wise. Yeah, so, it's interesting. That's the other side of the convenience of having one SAM.gov registration allows you to access all of those customers. It goes the other way too. That if you right. burn one of those customers, they have the ability to pretty easily find out about it. Whereas if you, if oh. you mess up with this company over here in California and this company over here in, in New York, probably never going to know about it. You're right. Sorry. No, you're hundred percent right. And you know, I came across you all from a partner, a mutual partner that does biz and proposals and Heather Teague, she's, she's amazing. She's been on the podcast before you work with bid and proposal folks, you help round out contracting contracts or opportunities and RFPs. When someone is coming to your group and they're saying, Hey, we know our pricing, we know our service, we've got past performance. How do we get this over the line or what's really being asked of in this contract for delivery? Do you all go into that much depth? Do you, do you break down the, from the contracting officer side? You really need to focus on this or you just say, yeah. Hey, everything you put together with that group's fine. So wh where we live is sections L and M, which is the instructions okay. offers and the evaluation criteria, right? And so, because the contracting officer is responsible for those and we live by those during the selection zone. When, when selection time comes, the contracting officer has to have the awkward conversation with the customer that says, I want to award it to this company. And I say, we can't award it to that company because what makes them strong isn't what we said we would choose them based on. The evaluation criteria doesn't gotcha. match what you want, right? And, what, and you do that, I don't know. I, I'd love to say that I did that once and got better at it, but incrementally better. But that, the problem is if you don't under, if, the, if you as a contracting officer don't clearly explain how evaluation criteria work to a government customer, and a lot of those are, a lot of those folks are new too. They're, they've got yeah, five years sure. of experience. It might be like a lieutenant or something. All of a sudden, this is another duty has assigned. So they don't know what they're signing up for. So that's where we live. Going back to your point, how we help companies. That's where we live is yes, our team helps write, like Vicky helps manage proposals. Uh, Joe actually helps write and manage proposals. But on top of that, where we have the, the, the biggest impact is what is this evaluation criteria actually going, how is it going to actually impact what you are trying to do? How is it written so that you can, you can win this versus you can just 
submit a proposal that go, oh, that's that's nice. You're you know you're average. Okay, yeah, now, right. now next, right? Or more importantly, what what tripwires are in there? We do actually talk folks out of bidding on things a lot. Maybe not as often. That's probably fifty fifty. I'd say I get pulled in a lot to talk through what what does it look like they want here. What kind of questions should we ask prior to RFP release, and more importantly after RFP release when they're public questions. What should I put in this question? How should I ask it so that we get the answer that we need to know whether or not we can bid? And likewise, on the government side, when folks are sending in questions, it can be very frustrating that they're being cryptic. As a country officer, I get those questions and they're cryptic. I'm like, well, what, what do you want here? Like, what, what, what answer are you? I don't, I don't know how to answer this, right? And so then, you know, therefore, I don't. Well, having an understanding of how to ask that question so that it gives you the answer that you want, in best case scenario, without tipping away you know, what your strategy is. Frankly, best case scenario is all these questions are asked before the RFP is released. But again, sure. there's a lot of like in the world of that. Yeah, <laughs> likely to that. working on that. Yeah, that's, that's really smart because you're actually probably helping them save a ton of money. That's a good no-go, good go, no-go strategy of saying like, is this even really right for you? Like, we know that you're, we can put together pricing. You seem like you're in the mix, maybe product-wise, but this might not be the best opportunity for you. That's saving a company a ton of money. And we both know small businesses, just proposals and, and bidding is a lot of money. It's a lot of overhead. It's, it's tough. It's really tough to do that. So you're probably saving them more times than not by telling them the truth of saying, this really isn't an opportunity for you or your P win is very low. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot of government contracting can not be about opportunity identification. It's about opportunity selection. And having the awareness of what can we actually win? And, and if we don't win, what are we going to learn from this? If, if you don't clearly understand the answer to one of those two questions, then you're, you're literally just throwing something over the wall and you're hoping for the best. And like, having gotten, looking back, the proposals I got, that they were very much uh, hoping for the best. <laughs> Thinking, why did you yep. send this? Right? Uh, but on top of the cost, there's the, there's the time is that yep. the time it takes to focus on this opportunity and, and as opposed to one that is a better fit. And one of the big things I've learned, because again, we sell to government and to industry, right? The pipeline for government needs to be bigger. They take longer. There are things that are going to happen that your, your pipeline is, it, it's, it needs to be fatter, but realize it's not, it, you're going to end up with a lot of things dropping off as you get closer to that point where do we actually bid on this? Whereas in the private sector, you can ask questions. And if you don't get an answer to those questions, that tells you it's a dead deal. Most of the time, you ask them direct questions and, and you can clearly tell if it's something that, that you're going to be able to, to actually deliver for a, a, a commercial customer. So awareness of the difference between those two, which is, I don't want to say it's lost on a lot of folks, but it, it can be lost on folks that are new. Now, here's a plug. Like, so my book, it's called Save Your Time. It's tip. It, you can get the audio. You can get the electric version. The, the, what you do you beat me that? to the punch, but I was going yeah. to ask you. <laughs> yeah, there's e- e-books, 10 bucks. But I'm not pitching the book so much as I know it'll help people. But it's called Save Your Time, Federal, a former contracting officer's perspective on why the government market may or may not be for you. And I really go through a lot of this stuff on that, but like these things of this, this is what's different. Like yep. there are things in like the fact that the expectation is you're going to compete. The expectation is you understand all these rules. You know what the FAR is. Like I, I remember sitting in meetings with contractors and I would ask him, well, well, this, this small business clause that you apply to that, right? And the look on his face this is a small business owner with like 60 employees and he's thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I feel like I should know right now. Right. And right. The, and the way that's perceived looking back, I was being really arrogant. Well, no, I just, I thought he knew. 
I thought as a government contractor, you read the FAR just like I did. Of course they don't do that. They're busy trying to make payroll. So there's all right. these things just miss, right? And so that that's probably the, the one of the, the biggest parts of understanding the difference between how government contracting works, how selling to the government works, and how different it can be in the commercial space. And I could go on for hours about all those differences, but I'll stop talking. No, I mean, I honestly think having a group like you and your group and your team, the knowledge base from your team as a hip pocket to your expense line, right? So like, and I I say this to our clients, we provide our partnership to Skyway for a reason. We can't answer questions that you all can. When it comes to SCA, DBA, ATSA and all that, the fringe rates, that's one thing, but the applicability and contract and the delivery and all these, I don't go down that road. That's not my background. I wasn't a contracting officer and I don't ever feign to be. But you can have the conversations that we can't, and we keep you as a hip pocket resource. Whenever our clients need it, boom, here we go. We're going to make an introduction. As a small business, and I just thought of this, and maybe I'm like making a sales pitch for you. I mean, there should be a budget line for a group like yours to say, don't go down this road because wasting time is wasting money if you're small. And when you get to a medium size, that go, no-go strategy is ever more important because the, pr- the primes, the big companies know way more than you do and they're going to take advantage, right? So There's like, that. yeah, you know, and, and the, the idea behind that is, hey, don't worry about having all these other expenses. We could be a hip pocket resource and help you make the right decisions. Is that part of your business strategy? Is that how you help contractors, big and small? Yeah, the, the, the way that our model works is that you either have us on a retainer with a small amount of hours that rolls over each month, rolls over for up to a year, or there are folks who buy like almost like an, like an IDIQ relationship with us where they'll just buy a block of hours when they need them and like a minimum of eight hours a year. But what happens is be, be, what, what we don't want to have happen, and you can hear my voice change. What we don't want to have happen is that you're chugging through your contract, you're chugging through your proposal, but this is pre and post award. Like people will have a contract, accounting officer terminates them, and then they call us. And I'm like, okay, we should have talked about this Let's talk about this ahead of time, right? The things that we could have said six months ago that you could have said to the contracting officer that would have kept this train from derailing. I have two, two examples of that. It's crazy that's happened. But this idea of I'll be fine until I'm not, that's what we're trying to avoid. And so by having a retainer model where we have clients that they only have one hour per month on retainer and they probably use us, I don't know, a couple hours a year, but the confidence, like what, when somebody says to, to, to me, well, what does your company provide? Confidence. That's the goal. I want people to be confident in government contracting because even if they don't know what, even if they've been, we have, we have companies that have been doing this. One a couple of, actually Steve Goldsby, he was on our episode 220, yep. 12 of our episode of our podcast. He's been a client for years. The dude knows probably 85% of what I know about government contract, but there's that 15% that he's got us as insurance. It's like, okay, when this weird thing happens, Skyly already knows who ICS is. And that's the perfect customer for us. The, the perfect client is one that, that they, they've already built a relationship with us. We all know who they are. So when, when the weird challenge or weird opportunity comes up, like you said, we're, we're in the hip pocket. And frankly, that just, that, that's how I'm able to keep this rock star team because it's interesting work. One of our core values is, is solving clients' unique puzzles. Well, if we have a relationship with you, you're going to bring us the, the unique puzzles. You're not just going to call us when you want, hey, I want to protest. Lots of people want to protest. It's not a really unique puzzle. <laughs> how do you build a relationship with a government customer in a way that you that you, they're going to understand what you want to know and they'll add that information in the RFP so you won't have to protest? That's a unique puzzle. Let's solve there that you go. instead. 
instead of just getting in a fight afterwards. No, and, and the fighting is expensive too, right? Protests are <laughs> yeah, expensive, and, and, right? So people can't afford it. And uh, I remember it felt like every contract was disputed or protested about five or six years ago. Every single award, every agency, there was always a protest about something. And I think something happened where people realized how expensive it is to protest. And the likelihood of getting that overturned is probably slim to none or very small. So do you help in protest though? If there is something, hey, how could yeah, we, we have changed our responses and how could we have done this better? Yeah, we, we see that as the nuclear option. So we, we go out of our way to solve everything. For example, an agency protest is, yeah, it's not nearly as much of an impact, doesn't create as much cost for either side, but it can get you that outcome. Also, being like I, I've joked in, uh, actually Paul and I just did a podcast recently where when the, contracting, when the contractor says to the contracting officer, I need to learn this, whether or not, because I need to know this, this fact, because it's going to decide whether or not I'm going to bid. I really don't want to have to protest to get that. Yep. I had a contractor say that to me once and was like a GS9. And I'm like, is that a threat? I'm like, well, it, it is, but it's a pretty good one. Because what he's telling me is like, I can get this information the hard way. We can yep. just answer the question in the RFP and, and we'll avoid this, right? So we help with a lot of the, how do you avoid getting into the, to that you know, fight in the first place? Yeah. We also help folks understand what, are, what you have the grounds to protest. While I, I understand you're mad because you lost, but what you lost over isn't a protestable thing. Or what you lost because of isn't what you're going to win a protest over. And I tell the story a lot that three companies, this actually happened to me as a contracting officer and it's also happened to me when I was helping a company when they called us after things went sideways. It's three different companies, company A, B, and C. Company A wins, right? Company B protests. But because pro company B was the third in the evaluation, company C ends up winning. So think how, well, think what happened there. So company A gets a contract, they're, they're, they, they, get, they get the notice that it's been protested, so they sit tight. And now they're waiting, yeah. right? And then sure. company B is going through all the rock and roll of, of months of, of process to be able to get the protest through. And then they get it actually sustained, and it's six months later. And company C, who's moved on, because they lost, right? They all yeah, of a sudden right, get this sure. weird letter from me saying, oh, you, you won. And they're like, what? Oh, hang on. I'm going to see if the people that we had on the contract are still here. It's a weird yeah. conversation, right? So we want to avoid that kind of stuff. And here's one of those things that I, I, when, I heard a con when I heard a contracting officer say this, again, I'm like a GS9, he said that all it costs to do a protest is a postage stamp. How yeah, untrue absolutely. that is. But that perception from the government side, because we've never done it, right? Now, even a government lawyer will tell you that's not true. But if you're a contract specialist or you're a contracting officer who's not dealt with them yet and you don't realize the impact and the rules, and yes, the FAR says you, can, you only have to have these basic things. But to do that, to get it in front of the GAO, you got to be ready because the GAO is going to come back with all kinds of... You can't, just like, you can't just mail in a letter. It's a whole thing. Right. So awareness of, of what does it mean to protest? What do you actually... Like how mad do you have to be to protest? And I think that's probably my biggest message is that there's so many ways for us to communicate before we get to that protest. There's so many informal, even formal ways. Like we, we can ask, you can do a corrective action based on feedback you get during a, a source selection. You can do so many different ways to communicate inside the FAR. You can use a competitive range determination. You can use down select. There's lots of different ways to communicate where, how things are going before the Dear John letter that results in the protest. And just awareness of what those other steps could be is a lot of the stuff that we help with. And then, yeah, in the worst case, we end up in the, in the protest cycle. And 
we, we've, this, I'm, this is a weird thing to brag about, but yeah, the, the number of protests we've helped people either avoid or to win is, is pretty high percentage, but that's not, uh, that's not something to brag about. <laughs> it's like, I'd rather well, than not get there. It's a nuclear right. option. You, you said yeah. it's a nuclear option. It's, it's the path that you do not want to go down by preference, right? You, you exactly truly want to have the best solution, best proposal, best pricing going forward. All the questions out front, right? And it's a defensible position that should you win or should you lose? Hey, either way, we, we know we did the best thing possible without having to go the extra route, unless you're completely aggrieved, right? And you're saying like, this is, we should have won and we're absolutely going to fight this. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, we've seen that happen. And like, those are, those are the ones we've helped people win because cutting off is just like any, any other large organization. There's a percentage of people who it's like, you're not really doing your job here. And we've had a couple of them over the years that, that, okay, yes, we're going to the mat on this one because there you they go. should have won this. Like, this is not what, like, I am a big fan of being, of the contracting officer profession and you are mail it in. <laughs> so we're going to back somebody up to make sure that you can't mail it in. But yeah, like by extreme exception, like I can think of twice that's happened. Yeah. And, and, and you know, these folks are there, you know, the type of folks that are doing this, you know, the type of rigor that goes into review, the type of money and time that really is built in around proposals, especially the larger they get. So to, to have a dispute or, you know, a protest, especially the larger the opportunity, it has to be really rock solid, right? Before somebody's just willing to throw in there and saying they're going to dispute because it, it, it's time, money, energy, and effort. And, and, and large can be relative. I mean, a $5 million contract can be really large to a small business with. That's you know, true. Yeah, you're right. That, that you know, is a relative. It's, it's awareness of, of the larger the protest, the more decimal points you may add. But it, like an agency protest, I mean, again, I'm not suggesting we start popping off agency protests like they're uh, you know, fireworks. But an agency protest is not a disclaimer in the podcast. It is an effective tool to say, okay, we're, we're missing, for some context, an agency protest keeps it internal. That's but you basically you're protesting to the contracting office in the agency versus going to yes. the GAO and, and having all these people who don't have context on what the agency does or, or may not have context. An agency yep. protest basically says, okay, I'm sorry, my phone's going off. The agency protest says, we're serious about this seems like things didn't get done well. What are we missing here? That, that's a relatively informal. And so just being able to, to have that conversation before we hit the, the nuclear GAO protest button, uh, it has, I don't know, I'd say it can be 80% as effective and it doesn't cause nearly as much of a drag for the overall organization. There you go. Well, look, I, I mean, I've answered a lot of my questions that I had for you. I had a great time. Anything you want to, leave us with? Yeah, a couple of, well, actually, whether you're new, I was going to say, if you're new to government contract, even if you're not new, there are a couple of concepts that we've developed over the years that we have podcasts for them that we, we train on these and whatnot, but they're, they're, we have free podcasts for them that I really think that they'll help people understand like how the contracting officer operates, right? So the first one I'll start with is the acquisition time zones. And we cover those in episode three of our podcast. If, if you go to govconpodcast.com, that will take you to our yep. library, type in acquisition time zones, you'll see a whole boatload of them. The very first one was episode number three. So I'll start with that one. The second one is episode 118, which is called The Three Deciders. And the reason that that's so important is that in every government acquisition, or actually every purchase, there are three people, groups of people deciding what's bought. The economic decider who funds it, that's the funding activity in government speak. The customer 
or the requiring activity in government speak and the contracting officer. All three of those have a play. And sometimes we, and the things I, like, again, this is an example of things I thought people understood. I thought it was very clear. I thought it was very clear to everybody that all three of these deciders existed and they had different roles. Turns out a lot of government contractors, because again, they're not trained on this stuff and it's not public right. knowledge everywhere. They're talking to the economic decider thinking it's the contracting officer. Or worse, they're talking to the contracting officer explaining what they do. As a contracting officer, I don't have any money and I don't have a requirement. So telling me what you do is interesting. It's worthwhile if my agency buys it because someday I may come across something that I can buy from you. But I'm only buying it with somebody else's money, the economic decider, based on what the customer needs. So make sure we understand those, those three deciders. And then the last one I'll give you is the execution time zones, which we cover, I, I believe, most recently in episode 372. And that's what happens after award. It's very easy to forget that government contracting didn't stop being complicated just because you won the contract. And, and here's a, a, a little a tidbit. You may be able to use that 8A or the small business set aside to win the work, but most of the work, most of the requirements after award are the same as everybody else. You still have to be cybersecurity compliant. You still have to have OSHA 9000. You still have to have OSHA 9, sorry, ISO 9000 and OSHA. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> All of those, you still have to be able to pay your employees properly. You still have to have benefits. All that stuff still applies and you don't get a pass because yeah. you're a small business. And again, that's the kind of stuff that I thought people knew. But when I award a contract to a small business and they say things to me like, how do I use wide area workflow? I assume they knew this. The fact that it's yes. their first contract, not to be harsh, but it's not my problem. And so having an awareness of once you win the contract, the expectation is, okay, now you know this stuff, which is why about 40% of the help we provide clients is post-award. And so the execution time zones will help you understand what's happening in those zones and knowing how to manage the execution time zones, go back to the previous conversation we had about delivering well and not getting a black eye. All that work is happening. Your past performance is happening in the execution time zone. So those are my three. Episode three, which is the acquisition time zones, the three deciders, which is episode 118, and then the execution time zones, which we started in, I believe, the episode 372 is probably the latest. But okay, there's 400 episodes. Well, there's all kinds of fun stuff. Well, no, stuff I, look, I mean, when I was introduced to you, I went, I think I told you, I went into your podcast. I think I ripped through nine podcasts. The first one was probably, obviously that I listened to him being a former Marine as well. It was an easy take up for me, but I mean, I don't miss one now because you're helping me from our side of the business, help contractors not make mistakes. We've referred a bunch of people to your podcast. We've had people that even said, Hey, Jim, thanks for the call. Can we talk to them directly? Here's the introduction, right? Yeah. We just pass it along. Because we're not going to feign to sit in your side of the world and there's no way you can replace that experience. So it's been great working with you all and the information's outstanding. I appreciate that. And, and it puts a smile on my face because I mean, this, this was the, the dream I had 12 years ago. I thought, wow, we could, if we could help people understand both sides, government contracting would be a little less exhausting. And so I feel like we're inching in that direction. Now we just have and to I get got... more people that are uh, in industry small businesses, mid-sized businesses to kind of focus on it, right? And, and really stay in the fight because seeing the small business side of it decline, like you said, over the last decades, a scary thing, right? Because the, the bigs can only get so big. They can only do so much work. And it really takes the ingenuity of the smart people and great people of this country to kind of keep picking it back up and really helping the industry keep moving forward. And it's always been off the backs of small business. And I, I hope that doesn't, doesn't stop. Yeah, I think the what will keep it going and getting the small businesses back on board is just 
awareness of, of this isn't supposed to be that hard. It, it's the kind of the joke of government contracting is hard even when you're doing it right. Business is like that. It's like being a small business owner is hard, right? So just letting them, help, helping the small businesses understand, you can do this. There's some new, there's some new language to hear, et cetera. But to be able to pick it up enough and, for example, to be able to sell through micro-purchase or through simplified acquisition procedures, for, which is a $250,000 contract, that's real money for a company with yes. five employees. So there's millions, literally millions of small businesses that think they have to like be able to behave like Lockheed Martin. It's like, no, you don't need right. 1% of their infrastructure to sell the great thing you have to the government. What you got to do is get into SAM, show you have fast performance, and then learn the lingo. Those aren't really a big of a hurdle, but they sound scary until somebody says it to you in a way that you can go, oh, I can do that. And for as little as an hour on retainer a month or whatever, they can call Skyway Acquisitions to get some of that help. That's exactly right. And, and that's why I'm smiling. It's finally it, working. I, I love it. I love it. Well, can't thank you enough for your time today. Uh, can't thank you enough for our partnership. Keep doing great things, man. We're, hopefully we get to do this again in about a year and have a refresh to see how it's been going. No problem. There's always more stuff to talk about. You bet. You bet. All right. Well, thanks, thanks again. Mm-hmm.